0: I was looking over the the records for our pool's swim team the other day, and I couldn't help but notice that this one kid, uh, Jeff Kruger, had his name on it 20 times. He has records dating back to 1982 that are still holding today in most of the age groups and in all but one of the strokes. Whether his uh, pool records stand or fall this year, it can't be denied that he was a remarkable swimmer. But I'd never heard of him before, and you probably hadn't either. Uh, Similarly, there have been kings and rulers who have done remarkable things, and yet, unless we have seen or experienced their change in the world, they'll likely either be forgotten or just another name. Even many of the kings listed in the Bible give us little more than a name or a deed or two, a moral evaluation of whether they were righteous or evil, uh, and. We have very little to really remember them by in some ways. And then there's one king named Solomon. He is hailed for his wisdom and seems at first to be the promised Messiah God's people have been waiting for. But even Solomon's reign would fall. Solomon, as we'll consider today, was meant to point us toward a greater king and lasting king, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the passage on page 287. 287. The message of the Christian scriptures, the Bible, to use the words of Vaughn Roberts, is that God is bringing His people into His place under His rule, under His and through His Son and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament... In the Old Testament, we have types and shadows, what is to come in full in Jesus Christ. And as such, when we come to the book of Kings, and especially to the reign of Solomon, we're beginning to see what is perhaps the fullest, the fullest Old Testament type and shadow of God's purposes of bringing His people into His place under His rule. As we read, Kings, our expectations and anticipations are rightly roused. In Solomon, we're beginning to wonder... Is this God's promised Messiah and King? Solomon is presented as the most complete picture of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham as he blesses many nations. Solomon is presented as the most complete picture of God's promises to David as he is the son who sits on David's throne and builds a temple for God. But as we'll eventually see in the book of Kings, Solomon is not God's messianic king, as we had hoped. Solomon like Adam, sins and falls. Like all humanity has walked in the sin of Adam, what follows in the book of Kings is a nation that walks in the sin of Solomon. And so the nation comes crumbling down and is cast out of God's land, like Adam was cast out of God's garden. In First and Second Kings, we have a book that was originally one book. And together, their message, First and Second Kings, was that despite Israel's sin... And the sin of her kings, God's true king will come. Though the book describes a descent, a descent from the from the golden era of Solomon into the grueling era of the exile, though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's disobedience to the law of God, the book still concludes with a king and son of David being released from prison. And so we're given hope that God will yet fulfill his promises to send a son and sit on the throne of his father, David, and reign forever. So far in the book, the author has been at pains to express that Solomon, he was the right king to sit on David's throne. He is the king who sought God's wisdom, judged with wisdom, and blessed others through wisdom. In our last study... We saw Solomon's wisdom displayed in his pursuit of the worship of God. In 1 Kings chapters 5, 6, and 7, Solomon built and furnished the temple. And now in 1 Kings 8, the temple of God is dedicated and put to use. Temple worship is inaugurated. It it has begun. And as we begin to study 1 Kings chapter 8, let's get oriented to the contents of the chapter. It's 66 verses long, and it's filled with action. In the first 13 verses, God makes his presence known in the temple. And this leads Solomon to reflect on and recount God's promises and his power to keep them. To keep his promises in verses 14 to 21. God's promises and power lead Solomon to pray in verses 22 to 53. And through prayer, Solomon praises God and petitions God to forgive sinners like us. The chapter closes in verses 54 to 66, emphasizing peace. Through this movement, we learn five lessons about God's glory. God's glory is revealed through God's presence, promises, praise, pardon, and peace. And I hope that we will see this in the text itself. Uh, While at the same time, seeing how this revelation of God's glory points forward to the glory of Jesus Christ. First... First point, God's glory is revealed through God's presence. God's glory is revealed through God's presence. This is what we see in verses 1 to 13. For now, just read the first three verses of 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Chapter seven, which is the chapter before chapter eight, chapter seven concludes with Solomon making the final preparations, supplying the furnishings For God to come and dwell in his house. And chapter 8, which we're looking at now, it opens with Solomon assembling all of the appropriate personnel to make that possible. The Ark of the Covenant, which was God's earthly footstool, had to be moved from the tabernacle to the temple. And here we'll be alerted to a transition from a temporary dwelling, a tent, to a more permanent dwelling, a house. And there's something else that signals this transition to all of this is taking place at a feast in the seventh month, which is when the Feast of Tabernacles took place. The Feast of Tabernacles was a feast, a joyous celebration that recalled the Lord's faithfulness to His people in the, wanderness, in the wilderness wanderings of Israel. While the, the people of Israel, they, they dwelt in tents or booths in the wilderness for 40 years. And when that feast was instituted, it looked forward and backward. It looked forward and to the time when the people of Israel were no longer wandering in the wilderness. And yet, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and settled in the Promised Land, they would look back on their time at Mount Sinai and their time in the wilderness, and they would look back and remember God's faithfulness to dwell with them, to keep them, to protect them, provide for them, and to preserve them. This feast, this Feast of Tabernacles, it's a massive feast. We're told there in verse 5, you see that there, they were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. And why not have such a large celebration? With Solomon's choice of holding this celebration in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, he's clearly signaling to the people of Israel that their time of wandering really was complete. They had lived in the Promised Land for quite some time, but with God's house being a mobile tent... There was always the potential of picking up and moving. Now there was no moving around. There was only moving in. Moving into the temple. Verses 6 to 9, they follow the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place. And notice what happens in verses 10 and 11 after the Ark comes to rest there. Verse 10, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is what is known in the scriptures as a theophany. A theophany is where God makes his presence known physically and visibly. What is occurring here is reminiscent of what happened actually in Exodus chapter 40. When the work of building and furnishing the tabernacle was complete. In verses 12 and 13... We see that Solomon, he, he confirms the majesty and wonder of God's presence, God's dwelling with His people. God has made His presence known in the temple. But what difference does that make? What difference doesn't it make? Is it not a great comfort to know that the Almighty, infinite and Holy God has been pleased to draw near to his people? His presence is personal. But we know that most especially through the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John's Gospel opened these words with these words about Jesus concerning His arrival. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And a chapter later we are told that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the temple pointed forward to. Jesus is now the true center of worship. And what happened at Jesus' transfiguration in Mark chapter 9? A cloud overshadowed him, and his glory was revealed. Just as the temple surpassed the tabernacle, and God made that known through his glory cloud, as we see here in Kings 8, so the temple has been surpassed by the arrival of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of his worship. Just as the people of Israel never reverted back, to tabernacle worship once the temple arrived, so the people of God will never revert back to temple worship because the true and final temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come. Just as the temple would become the center of worship for ancient Israel, so Jesus has become the center of worship for Christians. And as the book of Kings unfolds, segments of Israel, some of Israel's kings, would begin worshiping at high places and other places. This was utter sin and folly. For God did not dwell there. He did not make His presence known in those places. He made His presence known in the temple. That was where He was to be worshipped. That's where He authorized His worship. And now in His person, Jesus is the place of God's authorized worship. We, like the ancient people of God, are always in danger of going somewhere else for worship. One of the remarkable things that the New Testament reveals is that God is with us corporately as a church and with us individually as well. As individual believers, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And the church is called the temple of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Christian, shouldn't God's presence in your life make a difference in everywhere you go, in everywhere you every word you speak, and every sight you see. When you're tempted to sin, and you remember that God is not merely there watching, but in truth, present with you by the Holy Spirit, doesn't that help you to fight temptation? Doesn't God's presence in your life, Christian, doesn't it convict you to be careful with your eyes, careful with your thoughts? In reality, you're never alone. And that either strikes fear into your heart where it cultivates humble joy in your soul. God's glory is revealed through his presence. That's what we learn in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. But there is a reason that God is present with his people. God is present with his people because he promised to be present with them. He made promise after promise. And what Solomon acknowledges and glorifies God for in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 14 to 21 is God's promises kept by God's power. This is our second point. God's glory is revealed through God's promises. God's glory is revealed through God's promises, or we could even more precisely say, through the keeping of His promises. Uh, read 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 14 to 21 now. Beginning there in verse 14. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with His Can has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. If there's a key phrase to be found in these verses, it's found there in verse 15, God fulfilled with his mighty hand what he promised with his marvelous mouth. In other words, God brought powerfully brought to pass what he promised. In verse 20, Solomon signals the fulfillment. Of God's promises, David. In those words, you see them there in verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled His promise that He made. And what promises did God make? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, God promised David that He would appoint a place for His people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, God promised David that He would give His people rest from their enemies and that He would make David into a royal dynasty. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God promised that he would raise up a son after David who would establish the kingdom and build God's temple. And all of these promises and more from 2 Samuel, Solomon says, have come true in him. And did you notice how Solomon inserted himself into the fulfillment of God's promises? Verse 20, you see that there, verse 20? I have risen in the place of my father David. And a little later in that same verse, and I have built the house for the Lord's name. And then in verse 21, I have provided a place for the ark. All this is true. And we probably shouldn't look down on Solomon for this. Solomon seems to be exalting God for the fulfillment of his promises. And yet we must ever remember that God ordinarily uses means and men to accomplish the fulfillment of his promises. There is a mysterious and wonderful interplay between divine sovereignty and human activity. The truth is that Solomon could do nothing but what God planned to do and purposed, and brought to pass through him. As Phil Riken has said, Solomon is not treating the temple as an individual achievement, but as something he was enabled to do by the grace of God. As he dedicates the temple, anything he says about himself is put in the context of God's faithfulness. Solomon understood the difference between praising ourselves for what we have done and praising God for what he has enabled us to do. I think he's exactly right about that. The whole context of this is praising God for what he has done. That God makes promises and powerfully brings them to pass for the blessing of his people ought to comfort us, strengthen us, and enliven us. Let us remember that the Apostle Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, verse 4 called the promises of God very great and precious. The promises of God ought to comfort you. When you are tried by difficulty, remember and be comforted by the truth that He has promised that He is working all things together for good. Romans 8.28 When you are weakened by weariness, be strengthened by the promise of the Holy Spirit's presence. When you are slowed and made slothful by temptation or ensnared by sin, be invigorated and enlivened to live your resurrection life in Jesus Christ. By the promise of the banishment of all sin in the new heavens and the new earth. Live today what you will be in full on that day. Do you view God's promises as very great and precious? How could they not be great when they come from such a great God? How could they not be great when they so often span hundreds, if not thousands of years? How could they not be great when they pertain to matters of eternal salvation. How could they not be great when they are aimed at bringing glory to the infinite and eternal God? And aren't they precious? Aren't they precious? Through His promises, God means to bring us eternal good. Through His promises, God means to persuade us that He is for us. Christian, hold on to God's promises. For what He has promised with His mouth he will powerfully perform with his hand. Let us remember that the New Testament understands that Jesus is the final son of David. Though Solomon lays claim to the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7 here, the New Testament teaches us that in Jesus Christ, someone greater than Solomon has arrived. Paul opened the book of Romans in this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. God's promises find their end and goal in Jesus. So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. God's glory has been revealed in the keeping of his promises in Jesus Christ. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 21, uh, God's glory is revealed through his presence and his promises. In verses 22, To 27, we come to the first portion of Solomon's prayer. In this first portion of Solomon's prayer, we see God's glory revealed in his praises. This is our next point. God's glory is revealed through God's praise. Take a look at Solomon's praise, which we find in verses 22 through 27. Read those verses now. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, or Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Jesus, you'll remember from the Gospels, Jesus poignantly observed as he was reflecting on the temple that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And for that reason, it's appropriate that Solomon dedicates the temple with a lengthy prayer. Solomon begins his prayer standing there in verse 22. And by the time we come to the end of the prayer, he'll be kneeling. But more on that in a moment. How does Solomon begin this prayer? He begins with praise, which is where Jesus told his disciples to begin their prayers, as we thought about this morning in Sunday school. What kind of praise does Solomon offer to God, to Yahweh? First, Solomon praises God as the one who is incomparable in verse 23, you see there, he prays, O Lord, or Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath. Here Solomon is saying, there, there's no one like you. There is no God like our God. Nothing and no one compares to you. Just think of the words of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, where Moses said, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or the psalmist The psalmist wrote in Psalm 86, verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. First, Solomon praises God for being incomparable. Second, Solomon praises God as the one who is faithful. Did you notice that in verse 23? He is the God who is keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. In short... God is faithful to all of His covenant obligations and promises. Again, this is the unwavering witness of Scripture. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, we read, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. God is incomparable, and God keeps covenant. This is Solomon's praise. In fact, Solomon, he ties these two points together. What makes God incomparable is that he keeps covenant and shows steadfast love. In verses 25 and 26, Solomon asks God to keep his promises to David, to have his son sit on his eternal throne. And it is our praise that God has done that in Jesus Christ. There is no God like our God. He is worthy of our praise. He is incomparable because he keeps his promises. Solomon's praise is extended there in verse 27. You see verse 27, Solomon, he, he asks a question, but in reality, what he's doing is he's marveling at the greatness of God. He's saying, I've built this majestic temple. Just think back to chapters 5, 6, and 7, all of those marvelous descriptions. I've, I've built this majestic temple temple but it's far too small to contain you it it is finite but you are infinite solomon is marveling at god's grace to condescend and make himself known to his people and receive their praise christian does god receive your praise do you ever stop and wonder at the immensity of god do you ever stop or are you ever overcome by his creative power Do you ever stop and wonder and give Him praise for His covenant love? Do you ever stop and wonder at the truth that the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth comes to live in so small a temple as you? Give Him praise and reveal His glory to others through your praise. Just as Solomon does here. God's glory is revealed through his praise. God's glory is also revealed through his pardon. This is what we learn from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 28 to 53. Let's begin by reading verses 28 to 30 now. Verse 28, God's glory is revealed through his pardon. Verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Here is Solomon interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. As the king, the representative head of God's people, he prays that God would hear his prayer. At least four times in these verses, Solomon begs God to listen to the cries of his people. And what does Solomon want God to do when he hears the cries of his people? He wants God to forgive the sins of his people. In fact, what happens in different ways throughout the remainder of verses 31 to 53 is that Solomon mentions some calamity and then he asks God to forgive the sins of his people. He he asks God to pardon and forgive in verses 31, 34, 36, 39, and 50. And just to take as an example of this, take a look at verses 35 and 36. Do you see verses 35 and 36? When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. I wonder if if looking at these verses, do they they sound familiar to you? They, they have a ring in your ears? The calamity mentioned is precisely the calamity mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. There Moses, in one of his famous last sermons, he warned the people of Israel that should they abandon the covenant and sin against God, that they would face God's judgment in this form. In fact, other calamities, the other calamities mentioned in Solomon's prayer, defeat by an enemy, plague, and sickness are also found in Deuteronomy 28. See, Solomon is taking Moses' sermon as the launching point for his prayer. Do you understand what Solomon's praying here? Take a look at the first word of verse 35. Solomon is not saying, if heaven is shut up, On account of the sins of your people. But what? When heaven is shut up. On account of the sin of your people. Solomon is praying prospectively. And prophetically. He knows that the people of Israel. Will sin against God and transgress God's covenant. And so he prays that the Lord would forgive them. Solomon even prays for the inclusion of Gentiles and foreigners there in verses 41 to 43. He prays that they would come to know and worship God and presumably seek God's forgiveness. For the temple is where sacrifices are offered for the forgiveness of sins. Fast forward to verse 46. Verse 46 to 50. Just read those verses now. Verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet, if they, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray toward, pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you And all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive. That they may have compassion on them. Now did you notice right there at the beginning of those verses. There in verse 46. Solomon he revealed the universality of sin. Right in verse 46 he said. For there is no one who does not sin. That's the Old Testament version of Romans 6.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the lies which Satan wishes to whisper is that all are good, but the Bible reveals that all have sinned. Deep down, we know it too. Our lives, our interactions, our society reveals that there is no one who does not sin. So John Stott once wrote, quote, Much that we take for granted in a civilized society is based upon the assumption of human sin. Nearly all legislation has grown up because human beings cannot be trusted to settle their own disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected, and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need police to enforce them. All this is due to man's sin. We cannot trust each other. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indictment of human nature. Solomon, the wisest man in the world at that time, indicts the world of sin. Here in verses 46 to 56, Solomon is praying for the people of God if and when they go into exile because of their sin. Let's remember who the book of Kings was written to. The original audience It's written to a people in exile. And here the author of Kings through Solomon's prayer, is instructing the guilty and sinful people of Israel in exile what to do. They should repent of their sin and seek God for forgiveness. Have you done that? Have you admitted that you're a sinner? Have you confessed that you've done wrong? That you've lived your own way rather than God's way? Have you come here this morning with a heavy heart because you know you're guilty of sin and that you want that guilt removed. Give close attention to the boldness of Solomon there in verse 52. He says this, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. Do you understand what Solomon is saying, what he's praying? He's saying, Lord, hear my prayer for your people. Hear their prayer. Solomon prayed for the pardon of his people. He prayed for their forgiveness. God in His glorious grace and mercy did pardon His people. And eventually He did bring them up out of exile. If this prayer from a sinful man was heard and answered by God in His glorious mercy and grace, then how much more will God hear and answer the prayer of the sinless man, his one and only most beloved son. Our hope of God hearing our prayers is that he first heard the prayer of his righteous son. Christian, ever remember that Jesus has prayed for you. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would know the love that the Father has loved him with. Jesus prayed this for us in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And as Solomon prayed for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel, what what did our Savior pray? What did our Savior cry for us on the cross? Luke 23, 24. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. This was Jesus' prayer for his people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the book of James tells us that the prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. And Jesus was perfectly righteous, is perfectly righteous. Righteous, And He not only prayed for us on the cross, but He prays for us now. He prays for us now. As we're told in the book of Hebrews, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is still praying for His people. And so we sing five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary they pour effectual prayers they strongly plead for me forgive him oh forgive they cry nor let that ransomed sinner die has Jesus prayed for you has he pled the merits of his blood for your sin? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that pardon for sin and a peace that endureth is available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, admit now what you know deep down to be true. Admit that you are a sinner and that you have offended the holy God. By living according to your own law instead of His, and turn from your sin, confessing your need, For God's forgiveness and God's pardon. And look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And see what your sins deserve. You deserve to die and face God's holy, eternal wrath against your sin. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And believe that he paid the punishment that was due to your sin. And look to the empty tomb. See and believe that He was raised for the forgiveness of your sins on the third day. And believe God's Word when it says that Jesus is able to save those who draw near to God through Him. Draw near to God through repentance and faith in Jesus. Believe that Jesus prayed for you and is praying for you even now. And that His prayer is infinitely more effective than Solomon's prayer. God is glorified in the salvation in the pardon of sinners like you and me so give him glory and receive his pardon through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ today finally God's pardon is revealed through God's peace God's pardon is revealed through God's peace this is what we learn from 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 54 through 66 and as we begin to look at the close of this chapter and how God glory is revealed, take a look just at verses 54 to 61 for now. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and pre- plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. If you recall from verse 22, Solomon began his prayer standing before the altar. But from verse 54, we learn that at some point, prayer brought him to his knees. Perhaps it was the incomparable covenant faithfulness of God, or the immensity of God, or the weight of the sins of Israel that brought him to his knees. We don't know. But any one of those things led to his humble posture before the Lord and from that humble posture Solomon rose to bless God and to bless the people of God in verse 56 you see there Solomon highlights the peace that God has brought to Israel God has given his people rest from their enemies and in that same verse Solomon also acknowledges that God has been faithful to bring all of his promises to pass that God gave through Moses not one word has failed of all his good promise Just take that this afternoon and meditate on the glories of that verse. Solomon petitions God to continue to make His presence known with His people. And he asks that God would work in their hearts. Did you notice this? That He would incline their hearts toward Him. Naturally, our hearts are not inclined toward God. So God must work mightily and powerfully. By His Holy Spirit to give us a love for Him, we love because He first loved us. Solomon wants the people of Israel to be uh, uh, wants wants the love of the people of Israel to be manifested through their own covenant faithfulness, or as he says, says there in verse fifty-eight, to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His rules. This peaceful and loving relationship between Israel and Yahweh was never meant to be contained. It was meant to be contagious. Solomon's sight and hope for peace with God was not limited to Israel. So according to verse 60 there, you see it, Solomon wanted all the peoples of the earth to know that the Lord is God. There is no other. God's peace was to ripple out from Israel to the ends of the earth. And that would come in part through Israel's faithfulness in keeping His covenant. This is what would distinguish Israel from the nations that surrounded them. And be an inviting witness into relationship with God. But Israel failed in this. Which is why it was so important that Jesus stepped in as the true Israel of God. The vine, as He says in John's Gospel. The vine which was a picture, an Old Testament picture for the people of Israel. He was the true Israel, the faithful Israel. And we, through union with him, receive all of his blessings. Jesus, he told his disciples something similar to this covenant faithfulness, this call to covenant faithfulness that Solomon gives. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And one of his commands was that we love one another. Brothers and sisters, if we are to know his commands and walk in his ways of love, then we must know His Word, where His commands are found. We must know His Word. So continue to give yourself to reading God's Word, growing in the knowledge of His commands, for they are His ways of love. God's commands are His ways of love. Obedience to God's Word and His commands reveals our love for God. Obedience to God's Word demands our love for our neighbor, And for one another and obedience to God's Word shows the world what the love of Jesus looks like notice that Solomon exhorts the people of Israel in verse 61 to let their hearts be wholly completely true to the Lord our God and this this is where Solomon will fail the indictment of the book of Kings is that Solomon had a divided heart heart that was not wholly true to the Lord. He married foreign wives and we're told in 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 4 that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Sadly, Solomon did not heed his own exhortation and still in this moment in chapter 8, what may be the high point of the Old Testament this may be the high point of the Old Testament Solomon was concerned that the people of God recognize and rejoice in the peace that God had established for them as a kingdom verses 62 to 66 are a picture of a peaceful people worshiping and rejoicing in the God who has brought them peace through his presence his promises his praise and his pardon. They offer sacrifices to the Lord for his generous blessing to them. And as we conclude, I want us to especially meditate on the last verse of 1 Kings chapter 8. Read verse 66 there. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. The people of Israel left that assembly joyful. They left that joyful assembly joyful. They left the celebration of the inauguration of temple worship, and they went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown. That the author of Kings mentions there in verse 66 God's goodness to David and not Solomon reminds us of God's covenant keeping faithfulness. In Solomon, we see an initial fulfillment of God's promises to David, but we know that in due time, God will bring forth the final descendant of David, Jesus Christ. As we reflect on this, it strikes me that we should be joyful. We should be joyful and glad of heart for God's covenant faithfulness. If the people of Israel we're reminded of God's covenant faithfulness in David and reminded of the peace that they have with God through sacrifice and, and the blood of these animals, which cannot take away sin, then how much more ought we to be joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to us in Jesus Christ? Christian, it is because of Jesus that you enjoy God's presence in your life. Christian, it is because of God's promises and that they find their yes and amen in Jesus that you can sing and offer prayers of praise to God. Christian, it is because Jesus has pled for your pardon and intercedes for you now that you have peace with God. He has been good to you and He will be good to you until the end. He will be good to you until your earthly joy is transformed into eternal joy. Let's pray together.